0: Here's what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. The last thing that Jesus makes new, he gives us a new ministry, a new way of doing ministry. So we're going to talk about this, and it's on your bulletin. Uh, We're going to talk about our posture in this ministry, the power for this ministry, and the purpose of this ministry. So why don't you stand up, and we'll read the last time from Romans. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. And a little bit of overlap from last week as well. Paul says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. We shouldn't please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. But but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past, everything in the Bible was written for this purpose. To teach you. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, you might have hope. So may the God who gives endurance and the God who gives encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. In order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Jesus has become a servant to the Jews on behalf of God's truth. So that all the promises that God made in the Old Testament to the patriarchs might be made made to come true. And moreover that the Gentiles, by the way, everybody in this room is a Gentile, he's talking about you. So that the Gentiles or the non-Jews might glorify God for the mercy he has shown to us. As it is written, he quotes a few Old Testament verses. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will rise to rule the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. And so now, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray this prayer that Paul just uh, gave us tonight. Lord Jesus, we were praying outside a little while ago and, and struck by the impotence and the lack of power that my mere words have. I cannot talk anybody into your salvation. I cannot persuade anybody. I cannot logic or argue anybody into it. Your Holy Spirit must open eyes, must open hearts. And so would you uh, be pleased to feed your sheep tonight? Let them leave satisfied and full because they saw you, because they saw you what you were like and saw you gracious. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. So Dana alluded to this herself and I'm feeling it too. The um, past few months I've felt more and more uh, sentimental as the end of the semester approaches. And uh, not just because of the seven or eight uh, graduates who are going um, to be saying goodbye next week too. Um, but also I even keep time on like you freshmen. I'm already like looking three years ahead at May and I'm like already sad for that. Uh, and the people even in December. and um, It's the hardest part about life for a campus minister is always having to say goodbye. One of the best parts about it is always getting to say hello as well. Uh, and it's cool that on the second to last RUF of the, of the semester, we have a lot of new faces here tonight. So I hope I have a hard time telling you goodbye in a few years. But I'm getting sentimental, and I've had this thought pop into my head every day I can remember for the past few months. And it's this thought. I have the best job in the world. And I would not trade it for anything. I'm 34. It's taken a long time for me to get to a place where I can tell you I have the best job. Because I had a lot of crappy jobs too. (laughs) But I have the best job in the world. And I really do believe that. And I think about it every day. Leaving conversations with you guys. Leaving these nights. Even on the hard days. And the reason why is I get to... You let me into your life. I let you into my life. We walk through this together. We walk through change together. And I get to have a front row seat in what Jesus is doing in many of your lives. And that's a rare thing, to get to see him on the move bringing resurrection or new life from dead places in so many people. It's an amazing job. Um, And Anna will testify the same thing to you, uh, both of us. The longer that we've been here two years now, the more all of us are rubbing off on each other. And the harder it is to to let go uh, and to send you off. Um... And I was thinking about this as Paul is closing his letter. He's about to get to the, uh, the emotional part of the letter. Where he says goodbye to everybody. Romans chapter 16, the reason we're, I'll make mention of it next week, we're not going to talk about it too much, is he's basically telling goodbye to a ton of people he knows he won't see. He says, tell so-and-so I love them so much. I remember those times we had together. Make sure this person knows I asked about him." That's what he's doing. So Paul's not a sentimental guy. He's not like an adolescent who has no emotional control and posts up on Facebook and immediately regrets it and wishes he hadn't said it. He's in control of his emotions. He's an adult. He's a mature Christian. But he's a pastor with a heart the size of the world. Did you hear what Coolio read earlier? Paul was talking about a, it was another letter to another group of Christians. And Paul said to the Thessalonians... They're walking down memory lane together. He says, hey, do you remember what it was like when we were with each other? He's like, it was like a mother taking care of her own nursing child. And he said, I didn't just give you the gospel, like dump some information on you and and tell you to ask Jesus into your heart and then (laughs) skip town to the next town. He said, I shared with you my very life. Like, I, I, I laid it all out. I left it all in the field. There was nothing left of me to give, just the way there's nothing left of a mother to give her little child. So it's personal for Paul. He's a pastor. He's sentimental. And the, the longer you read his letter, the more we push on from what we just read into chapter 16, the more emotional it gets as he begins to say goodbye. I mean, as he, in a sense, um, as he has to think back of what God's done and, and the people um, whose lives he's been a part of. And so as Paul begins to, I guess his heart warms up, his heart fully warms up. And as it gets warmer and warmer and warmer as he's telling goodbye to these people, here's what happens as well. He starts warning them about one of the biggest dangers that will break them apart and undo a lot of the work that he had done uh, through this letter, a lot of the work that other pastors had done. And here's, uh, how do we know this? The first two verses of of the passage, Paul says... We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, which presumes that there was factions in that church or there was the potential for it, right? You don't warn people about stuff that's not a real danger. Paul's saying uh, we, instead of kind of looking down our nose at each other, instead of the strong resenting the weak or the weak hating the strong, we ought to bear with one another with patience. The other thing he says is we shouldn't be living in a way or shouldn't be a part of the church in a way or a part of a ministry in a way that we're out for our own pleasure. Where we're just in it for what can please us or what it can give to me. He says these things in a sense uh, will destroy the community. And so Paul with love for these people is warning them. And he just says after this, we'll come to this in a second. Everything that was written was written for you and for me. This is where the Bible gets super personal. Right? It's not like the sun at this point where it shows its rays on everyone. It's more like lasers individually targeted on all of your chests. This was written for you. Not you plural, you individually. This is, this is a word to you tonight. And so uh, let's hear this. What's, what's, what are the two dangers? If we pile all this up, the living for our own pleasures uh, and this kind of this, this resentment between strong and weak people. Um, I've tossed around a term with a couple of you the past few weeks. As we've been talking about some of this in conversations, and I made up a term. It's a stupid term, but it's, uh, I call it RV Christians. Recreational vehicle. Uh, a recreational vehicle Christianity, RV Christianity. Now, here's what I mean. If, if uh, most of y'all drive by RVs on the interstate, and you either are super jealous that this person gets to drive their home everywhere, uh, or you make fun of the old people driving it and never want to be a part of it, But the the beautiful thing about an RV is you get to take all the comforts of your life with you wherever you go, right? Um, And you get the cream of the crop of America. Like if you're in an RV, you could be parked at the base of the Colorado Rockies one week, and then if the weather goes bad, you can get in the car and drive over to New York City or Niagara Falls or to the Florida coast or the California coast. But you take the comfort of home with you everywhere you go. And, and literally, uh, you don't have to deal with all the boring places in between, all the hard places. You just get to kind of be a destination person. And you still get relationships, right? Because there's other RV people out there. And uh, you know each other. You know a little bit about each other's stories. You know people's names. You're polite and you're nice. But what you do lack, what you miss out, if you're like a retiree and you've kind of become an RV person, is you don't know people in a real way. Because your home has wheels. And you're always on the move. And even when you are in one place, you're ready to move to the next place. And Paul, I think, uh, hopefully would nod his head if he was hearing this right now, that this is what I'm talking about. This is what it was in my mind when I talked to you uh, about dangers that can come into a body or into a ministry. And I'm going to keep this practical and talk about RUF, because why be abstract when we can talk about this group and be more real? And so these are the dangers that can come into uh, these ministries. Uh, what would the symptoms of RV Christianity look like in here? And let me preface it with this. This is something that all of us have in our heart. It's like a disease in all of us. Me, you, all of us have it. This is what it looks like, and this is how it operates. Uh, in, in a place like this, RV Christianity might look like saying, as it were, to a friend, I'll, I'll park next to you as long as the scenery's good. Right, As long as I'm getting something out of this and the weather doesn't turn bad or you don't get annoying or clingy or super uh, super weak and I have to deal with your failings or whatever, I'm going to park next to you. But if things get hard, I'm starting up that engine and I'm moving on down the road to the next friend or the next small group, the next ministry, the next church. It could also look like this pleasure seeking uh, that Paul talks about in the first couple of verses where maybe you come to large group. Uh, and, and hear me carefully here. Maybe you've come to, to church or to large group just to get something out of it, to please yourself. Uh, these are convicting things. Don't feel judged by this. Feel convicted by this uh, because Paul's going to tell us how God changes us in the midst of this uh, in a few minutes. Um, but these are, the way, these are the ways that these, these dangers get into us. Perhaps we say to a small group, I'll do a drive-by for this group of people. Um, and, or maybe I'll circle around a little while, but I'm not really investing. There's no roots here. I don't have any skin in the game. And to us, if you're, if you're an RV Christian, that's great because you get to take in the scenery. You get to be a part of that conversation that night. You get to benefit from that, but then you're on your way. You have no buy-in to anybody in the room. And we don't think about how that hurts people. And we don't think about how that plays into the wor- what's worst about us as broken people. There were people on the move. Uh, In a sense, the gospel, what what Jesus is freeing you to do, what he's freeing all of us to do, is to put roots down. I didn't give a rip about Rona Drive a year ago because I didn't live on Rona Drive. I didn't even know where it is. I didn't care what happened. But now I live there and now I care a lot about what happens on Rona Drive because I own a piece of land on it. And I can't just pack up and move when things get hard. I'm invested. I bought in for better and for worse. And so when things do get hard, when the scenery changes, when the neighbors are loud, like Tito talked about a couple of weeks ago, I have to stay. And we have to work through that. We have to bear with the failings of the weak, in a sense. We can't live to please ourselves. It doesn't work in a neighborhood like that. And so these are the kind of things that Paul is talking about. Uh, The ways that we do this, perhaps there's other ways in your life that you see this going on. We don't perhaps see weakness in other people because we never stop long enough to know them. We just see the outside, the facade, but we don't know the weakness. We don't know the troubles. We don't know the pains. We don't know the places they're spinning their wheels. And so we push on. We think we know each other, but we don't. God is not content with you having inch deep relationships. Because God doesn't have an inch deep relationship with anybody. And we are made in his image. And so when we have shallow relationships where we don't know each other, where we're on the move, where there's wheels on our house, and we can always pick up and go, we are living a contradiction of the living God. It's noise where it would be harmony uh, in his world. That's why Paul kind of comes out of the chutes uh, warning his people, people that he loves, against this kind of stuff. This kind of stuff, this is why it's possible to... To perhaps, maybe you grew up in a church your whole life and you don't feel known.
1: Or you don't feel you know anyone. Or maybe in
0: college, you did like me where I hopped between churches all the time. And maybe you're lonely even though you're there. You hear all these talks about community. You hear talks about intimacy with other people. But you're like, it just hurts because it's not true. The reason there's dissonance there, the reason it hurts is not, it's other people failing to bear, bear with your weakness. And it's you failing to bear with others' weakness, failing to push in, failing to put down roots. So that's the bad news. Here's the good news, because I said I was going to talk about this group and these people to keep this real and practical. One of the things I also see going on amongst us is true marks of the Spirit. The kind of unity and harmony and community and relationship that Paul's describing here cannot happen with the resources in this room. Hear that. I can't preach well enough to make this happen. You can't have a small group that's insightful enough to make this happen. There will never be worship. There will never be songs, never be an experience, never be anything that can make you have this kind of heart that is this selfless posture for ministry or selfless posture for relationship. Paul says it is a gift from the God of encouragement, the gift of the God who causes us to endure. It is a gift. It is grace that he gives. It is something the spirit produces in you. Uh, And so in our midst, if you see unity in a group of people, if you see harmony, if you see selflessness in a ministry, you know Jesus is there. Our old pastor used to say it's something like uh, a turtle on a fence post. If you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. This kind of community and harmony and love... And bearing with one another is only there when the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is on the scene. And to the extent this is not there, we know what we should be praying for. So what, how do I know that, that I think this is happening here? How do I know that there are marks of the Spirit in many of you in terms of your selflessness, your selfless posture, your unity, the harmony amongst us? Paul says what, what the marks of it will be. He says this kind of stuff builds others up. You ever heard the phrase, um, a rising tide raises all ships? It's an image of a harbor with like tons of ships in there, some big, some small, some really pretty and nice, some awful. But the high tide, as the tide rises, every ship regardless raises up as well. And Paul is saying this kind of unity, the weak are built up and grow, the strong grow, and everybody in between grows as well. And so together as a body, this Next week when people share about if they're sad to move on or share about what RUF has meant to them, this is the reason it meant something to them, is they grew in harmony with other people. They grew up together. They matured together. And that binds you to people in this kind of unity that Paul's talking about. He also says it brings harmony within the body. I've mentioned this a few times. Verse 5, we have the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had towards you pause and get a load of what I just said. Can you imagine a church, a ministry, a group of people where people see you the way Jesus sees you? Have you ever thought about that? How Jesus sees you? Uh, You're a part of a group where people are as patient with you as your God is patient with you. Where people overlook your sin the way God overlooks a multitude of sin. Does not nitpick you every time you fall where people bear with your weakness instead of calling you out on it every time or just exasperatedly gasping every time they see you, because they're like, ugh. What would it be like for someone who knows you're hard to love light up when they see you? What would it be like to be at a place where people see you the way Jesus sees you? That's a taste of heaven. That's what heaven will be. But the gospel is that heaven invades earth now. Heaven begins now. You're already, if you're a Christian, tasting heaven now. Not in its fullness. That's why we groan. That's why we weep. That's why we're not the people we want to be. But that kind of heaven has started now. That kind of grace has started now. So I say every week, what's the million dollar question? Someone who's not a Christian could say almost everything I've just said. Most people on campus think it's a good thing to be friendly to people, right? It's a good thing to put other people's interests ahead of yours. To to love your fellow man or fellow woman. So how... But here's where we depart paths with everybody else. Because there's only one way that RV Christians, which is all of us at some extent, can become selfless, self-giving, self-sacrificial, loving and joyful Christians. It's the work of the Spirit, but here's how he does it. It's when he opens your eyes to the things that Paul talks about in this passage. Number one, that Jesus Christ, the living God, Became your servant. This passage is full of stuff that will break your brain if you try to think about it. Jesus himself bowed down before you to serve your interests. To take up your cause. You imagine coming before God one day and you being the one who bows and serves? The God of the Bible is the one who comes to you and serves. Not whatever your whim is. Not whatever your... Your wishful thinking is because he will not participate in your self-destruction. He will serve your true interests. He will fight for your behalf. He will put your good and well-being ahead of his own. It's when the spirit opens your eyes to see things like the God who is, is the God who bears patiently with your weakness. We talked about that last week. When you see that Jesus lived his life not only in allegiance to God, but in allegiance to your good will. He never made a decision That would put you in a worse place. The reason he fought temptation. The reason he went through adolescence. And all the hormones. And all the sights that he saw. And didn't give in. Is because it would prosper you. And because it would glorify his father. That is love. And when your eyes open to that. It begins to soften your heart and warm you. You see in real ways. That Jesus didn't live to please himself. And above all. When you see that God himself took the wheels off his house. Look, the gospel is this as well. Jesus is living in heaven for every eternity past. He didn't have a beginning. He's always been. There's never been a time without Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But one, I don't know, if, one day, Jesus, in a sense, drives to earth, and he takes the wheels off the car, and he never goes back in a sense. He puts roots down in this place. He invests in this place. He cares about this place. It affects him. He's like the neighbor who cares, not the RV driver who can always leave when things get hard. Do you believe this about your God? Is your God an RV driver? Does your God pack up when the scenery of your life sucks? Does he push on to some better person who's a little bit further along than you? Is he just in it for his own pleasure? Is he just in it for his own good? Or is there something else driving him? Paul says Jesus did not please himself. If anybody had a right to please himself, it's God. But he pleased you above himself. When you see God taking the wheels off his car, you'll begin to take the wheels off yours. You'll begin to abide with hard-to-love people. You'll begin to let people into your life knowing that they will leave that moment thinking, Man, Ben's hard to love. I never saw it before, but now I do. That's a hard thing, too. But this is where that community forms, where relationship forms, where ministries exponentially spread like wildfire and the gospel advances. The second and third points are quick and they're tied together. All of you have a problem like me. Summer's approaching and you're worried. Am I going to slide? Am I going to become dry? Is all this going to go away? I'm going to forget everything from the whole year. Not going to be around any other Christians maybe. I'm not going to have community. What's going to happen? God has accounted for that as well. The power for this kind of ministry, this kind of community is scripture. It's personal. God doesn't say God threw a book at you and said, memorize this and get back to me. He says the God of encouragement and endurance encourages you and teaches you to endure through the scripture. So it's the person of God himself who's encouraging and causing you to endure through the Bible. Every bit of scripture was custom designed by your maker for your growth. The words are right on the page. I'm not making this up. Every word of scripture is written to instruct us, to make us wise for salvation. This means that God isn't surprised that you're confused. It means that God isn't surprised that you have trouble seeing him as he really is. So he's taken it upon himself to introduce himself to you and to interpret history for you so that you don't have to interpret it Misinterpret it yourself. God understands your ignorance. He understands your forgetfulness. He understands the difficulty to remember these things when we most need to remember these things. He understands that you are prone to discouragement. He understands that you're exhausted. That's why he's given us something to encourage us, to cause us to endure, right? Why would he say these things if he didn't know we were discouraged, weary people who forget hourly? And so he's given us the scriptures to encourage us, to help us to endure. And so the Bible is aimed exactly at where you do life. Here's real quick how the Bible helps us to endure and to push on. The Bible helps you see past the fog. Maybe that's a simple way to put it. Uh, Life, emotions, relationships, suffering, school, everything puts you in a constant cloud of fog. And so you can't see anything that's around you even though it's there the bible turns the lights back on the bible lifts the fog it gives you situational awareness across the span of your life and all of reality so that you can see through it this is what the bible also calls faith and so in a sense it lets you see your relationships in a whole new way tension or conflict that you used to run away from and avoid you used to fire up your rv and drive away now you stay and you realize maybe Jesus is so kind that he actually wants me to learn to love. Thank you, Jesus. How sweet of you that you actually care that i become a beautiful and normal person again who can love. He helps you see past the fog in sexuality and so urges or instincts that you used to feel and immediately indulge or you thought were good, now you see through the fog. You see them as selfish. You see them as destructive of relationship. And you fight like hell. Against them, even if you fail. It re, it, you reimagine your involvement in a ministry. You stop coming to stuff to please yourself. You start coming to stuff to love people, to see God, to be encouraged that you might endure. Those are godly motives. Uh, not wanting to make a name for yourself, not wanting to break into an inner circle, not wanting to be a part of this gigantic movement on campus that has a ton of people coming. None of those are great motives. These are the great motives that Paul talks about here. There's a story of a guy, of a lady named Florence Chadwick. She was the first lady to swim the English Channel. And the, the distance between Catalina Island and the, and the shore of California is a little bit longer than that, I think. And so after she got this record of crossing the English Channel, she went and tried to swim Catalina Island to California. This is back in the 50s. The day she chose to do it, unfortunately, was a cold, foggy... Uh, day when the water was freezing and so she still swam it. They had a few support boats kind of going alongside of her. Her mom was in one of those boats. And uh, 15 hours into her swim, she has nothing left to give. Like her muscles are just screaming in pain. Uh, she feels like I'm going to sink to the bottom if I keep doing this anymore. So her mom's like, no, keep going, You're close. keep going. She can't take it. They pull her out. The boat Is like Literally, when she gets in the boat, they can almost see the shore immediately through the fog. She was just a mile away. Fifteen hours of swimming, she was a mile away. And she had a news conference the next day, and she said this, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. This is what I'm talking about. The Bible, Scripture, everything that was written for your encouragement is to help you see through the fog, to see your God through the fog. To see his character, to see his cross, to see his spirit, to see his people, to see his grace. When you can't see it otherwise, without the Bible, all you're left with is your emotions. All you have is how you're making sense of reality. And we all know the track record. The last point is this the purpose of ministry is the praise of God. What we mean by this is the purpose of all ministry, the purpose of the church, the purpose of RUF, the purpose of it all is that people might see God as he is and adore him. That's my, I'm not very ambitious. My goal is very simple. All I pray and all I care to happen every week when I get up to talk is that you would see Jesus as he is. I don't care about anything else. Because when you see him as he is, everything else is like a string of dominoes. It just falls right in order. Your heart melts. You see him as beautiful. He reorders your life. You want him. You follow him. You love him. The thought of laying down your life for him is nothing when you see him as he is. That's the purpose of ministry. I'll let you read the passage yourself for the sake of time, but the word praise is riddled throughout here. He says, God saved you so that you might praise his grace. He says we should accept one another as Jesus accepted us in order to bring praise to God. This little passage where he quotes all the Old Testament verses. It's all about praise, 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 sing, extol, lift up. God is bringing praise to himself by putting you back together again. By making you new again in Jesus. And so what does that mean for RUF? It means... I like it when the room is filled because that means more people might see Jesus as he is. But our purpose isn't to fill a room. And if you ever attach your ambitions to that, you're no longer doing ministry. You're seeking glory for yourself. Or you're seeking glory for a name or RUF. And Jesus won't share his glory. Um, there's other ways we do this where we seek glory uh, that is going to him. But RUF, the church... Christianity exists and brings glory to God. And this, in a sense, makes Christianity very simple. This is the story we end with. I remember I heard this at summer conference 10 years ago or something. Um, It was a seminar on knowing God's will. I was there and everybody else was in the room because we wanted to know who to date, who to marry, what job to take after we graduated. The pastor who led the seminar, I love him. I don't know him. I love him because he did this. He didn't talk a second about any of that stuff. He talked about Jesus. Because he knew when we saw Jesus, we wouldn't be so panicked about whether a job was going to come. We wouldn't be so debilitated and paralyzed about what the future was going to bring because we knew he was king and he is good and he is for me. That guy told this story about Carl Barth. If you've heard his name, that makes you rare in this room. <laughs> But Karl Barth was one of the most influential theologians in the past 200 years. He's a German guy. He's been dead a while. In the 50s, Karl Barth came to do a lecture tour in America. One night, uh, this guy at my seminary, there are literally, not just a shelf of his books, there is an entire bookcase, like from here to that wall, of his theology. Volumes. Like, if you stacked it up, it would be 20 feet. This guy knew the Bible inside and out. He plumbed the depths of theology deeper than any of us combined. This kid asked him at University of Chicago, they did a Q&A after his lecture, and this student asked Karl Barth, this incredible theologian who'd written more than all of us will in a lifetime, he said, can you summarize your whole life's work in theology in a sentence? This is before the age of Twitter, but he basically asked Karl Barth, boil all of it down. Can you do that? thought a second and he says this response. Those who were there recorded it. Yes, I can. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And he left. Can you summarize all of the Bible? That God... Insisted and ensured would be recorded for your encouragement in one sentence? Sure you can. You know it. Jesus loves you. This I know. For the Bible tells you so. God is making everything new. And to those of you who see Jesus as the powerful king who can bring resurrection out of your death, he will give you life too. But if you insist on living your own way with your own resources as if you're, t- you're okay the way you are, you will not taste in that life and you will not be made new. Jesus invites you to himself tonight to find newness, to find life, to test him whether he tells the truth or not. If you don't know him, come to him or talk to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We even can't come to you unless you enable us, unless you warm our hearts and let us see you. And so I pray that tonight, by your power, you would choose to bring praise to yourself by opening the eyes of blind eyes. And those who have seen you but have forgotten, would you even use this passage of Scripture to refresh our hearts and warm us to you again. We thank you for this year. We thank you for 22 weeks where you patiently walked with us and showed us who you are. We love you but we know only because you first loved us.